Okay, so my sermon today is titled, A Life Surrendered to Christ, from Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 26. So this is message three of my series, The Advance of the Gospel, and because I don't preach on a regular basis, I just want to remind you of the first two passages and what we learned. So in my first message, which was from verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1, I introduced the book of Philippians, and we looked at Paul's thanksgiving and prayer for the Philippian believers. And this was because of Paul's deep relationship with the Philippians, because of that he couldn't help but express his God expressed how precious they were to him. And he did this by explaining how thankful he was for their partnership in the gospel. Then he prayed that their love would abound for God and each other. This was done with the ultimate purpose of God being glorified in the lives of the Philippian believers. And in my second message, we looked at verses 12 through 18, which was Paul's experience in the Roman prison and how his suffering had served to advance the gospel. Paul's captors and everyone else who came to know came to know that Paul's imprisonment was for Christ. And as a result, the guards had started accepting the gospel, and believers were emboldened to proclaim Christ despite persecution. We also learned that some believers were preaching to try hurt Paul, and not doing it out of goodwill, but others were doing it, preaching out of sincere love and affection to Paul. And Paul responded, Paul responded by rejoicing in the proclamation of Jesus Christ, regardless of the motivation of those proclaiming. So this message continues from where we left off last time. Paul is still recounting his circumstances in Rome, and this was likely so that to encourage the Philippians because they were still worried about him. So let's read the passage together, starting in verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So I have a proposition for you today, and it's this. God wants you to magnify Christ in your body. So you may have seen in messages from me and also Pastor Scott that we like to give you a proposition at the beginning of our sermons. These are one-sentence statements that always begin with, God wants you to blank. The reason why we present you with these statements is because from our study of the text, we believe that these statements are accurate, accurate summaries of what God wants you to do in light of the message we're presenting. The reason why I have the proposition, God wants you to magnify Christ in your body, is because the text shows that God wants each one of you to magnify Christ in your body, like Paul did. In light of this truth, I have tried to put all my content through the filter of, will this help my audience magnify Christ in their day-to-day lives? The entire goal of this sermon is to convince you that the proposition is true, and then give you practical, actionable steps that you can take to magnify Christ. If I'm able to do this for you today, then I've succeeded as a preacher, and if not, I have failed. So, 
It is my hope and prayer that the message I bring for you today will be God's message for you from his word and that it leads to Christ-centered life change in every single one of you. So for those taking notes, I have four points and I managed to alliterate like a pro when it came to (laughs) writing out these points. So we've got point one, Paul's deliverance. Point two, Paul's desire. Point three, Paul's dilemma. And point four, Paul's decision. So yeah, getting all those words to start with D made me feel like a a true preacher. (laughs) So so we've got Paul... Point one, which is Paul's deliverance from verse 19. So I'll just reread verse 19 for you now. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul believed that what had happened to him, his imprisonment, would eventually turn out for his deliverance. So when I was reading through commentaries, I realized that there are a number of different opinions about what Paul is talking about when he mentions his deliverance. The Greek word is a standard word that is used when talking about spiritual salvation. But it can also mean well-being or escape. This has led to a number of opinions about this deliverance. Is Paul talking about his future salvation? Or is he thinking in physical terms with respect to his eventual vindication and release from prison? I lean towards the latter interpretation, as we see in later passages in this epistle, that Paul believed he would eventually be released and return to the Philippians. Also, the Philippian believers were praying for Paul's deliverance, and I think it's doubtful that they were praying for his future salvation, because they knew that Paul was saved, and they knew that he would be glorified. How could their prayers help him in that regard? However, regardless of the precise meaning, we can be sure that Paul believed he would be freed from his temporary distress. So there are two factors that led to Paul being confident in his future deliverance. Point one the Philippians' prayer for Paul. I'm sure that part of the report from Epaphroditus, when Epaphroditus visited Paul in prison, included a detailed account of how much the Philippian believers had been praying for Paul. They were concerned for his well-being, and were therefore praying for him. They wanted Paul to be preserved, released, and returned to them. Their prayer was effective, and it caused Paul to be confident that he would be delivered. Paul earnestly desired to be released from prison, which we'll get to, get into more in later verses, and this was so the Philippians would be encouraged as they saw God work and answer their prayer. And then we've got point two, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So we have this phrase, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, and it, it just looked really weird to me. Why isn't Paul just saying the Holy Spirit? And while this phrase isn't commonly used in the New Testament, based on other cross-references, I believe he is just talking about the Holy Spirit here. Perhaps Paul used the phrase to show that Christ, as well as the Father, bestows the Holy Spirit on people. So Paul had already seen the Holy Spirit working in his prison cell. I've heard from people who have worked in prisons that guards don't listen to prisoners. Why would you trust the person who's in prison for doing something wrong? But Paul's guards had come to realize that he was different, which led them to eventually accept the gospel I believe this was the work of the Holy Spirit in the guards' lives, that they would first listen to Paul and then accept the message that he presented to them. And having already seen the Spirit work during his imprisonment, this would have led Paul to have greater confidence in the Spirit's ability to deliver him. I don't think that the help of the Spirit of Christ was unrelated to the Philippians' prayers. Paul likely regarded the help he was getting from the Holy Spirit to have been an answer to their prayer.
So point two, Paul's desire. And I'm going to reread verse 30, that 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So again, we see this phrase, eager expectation and hope. These words are important to helping us understand Paul's desire. Eager expectation carries the idea of someone stretching his or her neck forward and focusing intently on something while ignoring everything else. It is then connected with the word hope, which is an eager and confident expectation that is grounded in the finished and redemptive work of Jesus Christ. This leads into my points on Paul's desire. While he was waiting for the settlement of his case, he had a well-founded hope in the fact that he would not at all be ashamed, and that Christ would be honored in his body. So, point one under Paul's desire, that he would not be at all ashamed. This phrase is seen in the context of Paul waiting for his case to be settled. It could have been referring to any future appearances that he would have had to make before governing authorities, or perhaps even when he would stand before Christ. Paul had hope that he would continue with the same courage that had, been character, that had characterized his ministry in the past. During my study, I learned that the word ashamed doesn't necessarily have the same meaning that we think of in the modern context. Today we think of the word in terms of guilt, disgrace, dishonor, but in scripture this word has to do with disappointment. The person who is not ashamed is the person whose trust is not displaced. This person is trusting in something, or more specifically, someone, who will never disappoint them. The only person who will never disappoint us when we put our trust in him is Jesus Christ. So I thought it would be good to give an example of misplaced trust in my own life. So I'm definitely not the hero of this story. Um, some of you may know, others won't, that I was enrolled in a master's program at the University of Waikato back in 2011, and I had to withdraw from that program twice. So during my bachelor's degree, I had learned that if I studied, I could actually get good grades. And in the last two years of my bachelor's degree, I almost always got A+. Pluses. And initially, I think I had the right perspective of trusting God and thanking for him, for my, thanking him for my good grades. But as time passed, I started to trust in my own intelligence and my own abilities. I trusted myself instead of the God who brought the entire universe into existence. By the time I was in the master's program, I was so used to getting A pluses that the idea of getting anything less became unbearable. I was, it was so unbearable that I freaked out and couldn't do my assignments anymore. I was so afraid that I decided getting no grade at all was better than getting a substandard grade. And as a result, I had to pull out of the program. I was disappointed and ashamed because I was trusting myself and not Jesus. So point two under Paul's desire. And this is the main point of the entire sermon. This is where I got the proposition. That Christ would be magnified in his body. In the ESV, the word is translated as honored. But if you have the KJV or the NKJV, you'll see that the word used is magnified. And I prefer this word as I think it better gets across Paul's point. So, the word magnified, to magnify something means to draw attention to it. So magnifying Christ means drawing attention to him. When I think of the word magnified, there are two objects that come to mind, a microscope 
and a telescope. And I originally got these, these thoughts and ideas from John Piper. A microscope which makes small objects look bigger, and a telescope which makes distant objects look closer. I prefer the example of a telescope because God isn't someone small who we are trying to make look bigger. He is bigger and greater than our entire universe. But to unbelievers, he is obscured and looks far away. Believers may think that they are too small to make Christ look big to an unbelieving world. But as a telescope, which is far smaller than the star that it's magnifying, can make it appear closer, so we, as believers, just like Paul, can magnify Christ and bring him closer to unbelievers for whom Christ seems far away. Although I have talked about magnification in the context of showing Jesus to unbelievers, it makes sense that we can also magnify Christ before believers as well. Paul's decision later in the text shows this to be true. So it was Paul's eager expectation and hope that Christ would be magnified in his body. This was his ultimate desire and the main idea for the passage. This was his ministry. So I was trying to think what magnifying Christ actually looked like. How do believers practically do this? I came up with the idea that it's how we respond to circumstances. Although we can do this in a multitude of ways, the most obvious to me is that Christians can magnify Christ in how they respond to suffering. If a believer rejoices in suffering, this can have massive effects on both unbelievers and believers alike. Also, we should note that the words joy and rejoice, so rejoicing and suffering, are the most common words in the book of Philippians. And also, Paul was suffering while he was writing this because he was in prison. And it turns out Paul gives us an amazing example of this, amazing practical example of this in Acts 16. If you remember when he was in Philippi, when he was starting the church, he cast a demon out of a slave girl, which led him to being beaten, arrested, and thrown in prison. Now let's go to the text to see how Paul responded in the prison cell in the midst of great suffering in his body. Acts 16, verses 25 through 30. And it's on the screen. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? In the midst of intense and unjust persecution, Paul and Silas were singing praises to God. They were rejoicing in their suffering. They were magnifying Christ before the unbelievers in prison, which eventually led to the salvation of the Philippian jailer and his entire family. And at the end of verse 20, we see this phrase, life or death. Paul wasn't afraid of death. Whatever happened to him, he wanted Christ to be magnified, and the circumstances didn't really matter. It was possible for Paul to magnify Christ, neither his life or his death based on how he chose to respond to his circumstances. This is what we'll look at in the next four verses. But before that, we have some application. Point one of application. In whom are you putting your trust? 
Are you trusting Jesus, or are you trusting something or someone else? If you are putting your trust in something else, you will be disappointed and ashamed, just like I was in the example I gave earlier. Another question you may be asking is, how do I know when I'm not trusting Jesus? How can I know when something else has my affection? I think one way to answer this question is to ask another, what can't you bear to lose? If you, like me with my grades, have something that you couldn't bear to give up, you have probably made that thing into an idol, and you aren't trusting Jesus. Point two of application. Are you magnifying Christ in your body? Do your responses to external circumstances, and do your choices and actions draw attention to Jesus? The entire point of this sermon is to help you, my listeners, magnify Christ in your body. You may be asking what this even looks like. The remaining verses of this passage should give you some good thoughts on how to do this in your life. Point three, Paul's dilemma. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So Paul had two options, and he was hard-pressed between the two. So I'm going to contrast these options, both life and death, and I will show the descriptive terms that Paul uses in the text for each, for each of these options. So in verse 21, Paul introduces the readers to his dilemma. He once again mentions both life and death. And in this verse, he presents them as two positive options. In this verse, and throughout the rest of the verses in this passage, he also showed his readers how he plans on magnifying Christ through life and death. In these four verses, Paul uses three descriptive phrases for life and two for death. So first we'll look at life. Paul describes life as being Christ. So, oh uh, yeah, bring up life and death, and then Christ. Yep. Paul describes his life as Christ. I think this raises a good question for us all. What does this look like, or what does it mean for someone's life to be Christ? The first answer that I thought of is this. It is for someone's life to be wholly devoted to Christ, wholly and completely devoted. To me, this is the only thing that makes sense, because Christianity is Christ. This was completely true in Paul's life. Jesus Christ was, and still is, the very essence of his life. In Galatians 2.20, we hear, we hear these words from Paul. It's up on the screen. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, and gave himself for me. Paul wasn't his own person anymore. Jesus was the motive for his actions, the goal of his life and ministry, and the source of his strength. Paul was willing to follow Christ wherever it took him. He had devoted his entire life to serving Christ, and was willing to follow him even to the point of death. So now we have the first descriptive term for death. Paul describes death as gain. 
The word gain is used figuratively in this passage to show that death in Christ is more advantageous than physical life. Again, this raises a question. What could be of greater advantage than a life that is Christ? More of Christ. And that's what we get as believers when we die. What could be better than seeing Jesus face to face? So Paul had already seen Christ in a vision, but most believers had not. As we see, Peter mentions this in 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So even at the time that Peter was writing this letter, most people hadn't seen Christ. They could have lives that were Christ, but they hadn't seen him. Even then, Paul's experience of Christ was nothing compared to what he would experience on his death. He was looking forward to seeing Christ face to face. And we see a good, a good Bible reference in 2 Corinthians 5, 6-9 about the advantage of death because you get more Christ. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, at home with Jesus. That was a little addition. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So yeah, Paul could have been killed by the Romans at any moment, but a death at the hands of the Romans wasn't an issue for him. To be executed for Christ would have been a great witness for the sake of the gospel message. It would have been a confirmation that his faith was steadfast until the end, and it would have been the gateway by which Paul entered into Christ's presence. So now we have the second descriptive term for life, which is fruitful labor. This is work that produces fruit, which refers to the continuation of Paul's gospel ministry of making converts, planting churches, and helping believers grow up into spiritual maturity. In order to see what his ministry looked like, we just need to read the book of Acts. Again, I've mentioned Acts 16 in this passage and in my first sermon. I shared with you how Paul started the church in Philippi with Lydia and the Philippian jailer, even in the midst of harsh persecution. This was fruitful labor that started the church he was writing to. Even during Paul's imprisonment, he had started to convert the guards through his witness, and other believers were emboldened by his imprisonment to share the gospel. Magnifying Christ was second nature to Paul. If he were to remain on earth, in the flesh, with all the pain and struggle of life, there was no question that he would continue his gospel ministry. And I just want to tell you all, and I'll get into this more later, but I want to tell you all now, Paul isn't the only one who has fruitful labor here in this life. We all do. All believers are called to share the gospel to a lost and dying world. We all have people that God has specifically placed in our lives that no one else has access to, with whom we can pursue gospel ministry. So now we have the next descriptive term, which Paul uses for death, which he says that death is far better, and the reason why death is far better is because he gets more of Christ again. In verse 23, Paul better explains why death is gain. He says that to depart, to die, is far better, even than the fruitful labor he was talking about in the previous verse. The phrase far better is described in the John MacArthur Study Bible as the highest superlative, Superlative is a really cool word, but just like. 
<laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, the highest superlative. Um, fruitful labor here on earth pales in comparison to getting more of Jesus Christ. And I've got a helpful quote from the John MacArthur Study Bible on this point. It goes like this, quote, Paul knew if he died, he would have complete, conscious, intimate, unhindered fellowship with his Lord, unquote. In this verse, we start to, oh, sorry, in these verses, we start to really see the struggle that Paul was experiencing. He started using phrases like, which I shall choose, I cannot tell, or I am hard-pressed between the two. The core of his dilemma was that he had two good options. If, if the choice of life or death was up to Paul, he wouldn't have known what to choose. However, based on the next descriptive term Paul uses for life, we will see what choice he finally made. So the third way that Paul describes life is necessary for the Philippians. This final point about life is what tipped Paul over the edge. Even though he desperately wanted to be with Jesus Christ, he realized that being alive and continuing to minister to the Philippians was of great spiritual advantage to them. It was necessary. Because of this necessity, Paul yielded his desire to be with Christ for the sake of building up the church. So now, from this point, Paul's dilemma, I've got a lot of points, of, a large number of points of application, like six. It's awesome. Um, so do you, yep, in the next slide, you'll see a phrase. As you can see, this came from verse 21. It says, for me to live is blank, and to die is blank. And I have a question for you. How do you fill in the blanks? Not how does the Bible fill in the bl those blanks, but how do you do that? And I have an amazing quote from Warren Wiersbe on this, and this quote will be the application. Philippians 1.21 becomes a valuable test of our lives. For me to live is blank, and to die is blank. Fill in the blanks for your yourself. For me to live as money, and to die is to leave it all behind. For me to live as fame, and to die is to be forgotten. For me to live as power, and to die is to lose it all. No. We must echo Paul's convictions if we are going to have joy in spite of circumstances, and if we are going to share in the furtherance of the gospel. For me to live as Christ, and to die is gain. Every believer should be able to honestly proclaim that this is true. It becomes a test for our lives. If you find that your life is something other than Christ, and you don't see death as gain, you are not trusting Christ and are engaged in idolatry. Point two. Is your life Christ? Have you wholly submitted to your life to him? Are there any areas of your life that need to be given over to him today? Point three. Do you fear death? Or do you see having more of Christ as the highest goal to the extent that you're willing if God should choose to depart because that is far better. Point four. Do you realize that it's not just missionaries and pastors who have fruitful labor, who have fruitful ministry? As I look at you, I can only see one person who's in full-time ministry. The rest of you are farmers, people that work with horses, farmers that work with horses, <laughs> hospital workers, typists, mothers, fathers, students. All of you have been placed where you are by God for a reason. 
He has placed the people in your life that you can encourage with the gospel and draw their attention to Christ. Pastor Scott and I are here just to equip you, you, all the wonderful saints in this congregation. We are here to help you magnify Christ in gospel-centered ministry. We want to equip you to do ministry. And lastly, point five. Like Paul did, will you yield your desires for the sake of those around you? Paul desperately wanted to depart and be with Christ. But as you see, he realized that staying here on earth was necessary for the Philippians. Are there any desires, even good ones, that you need to put aside in order to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ? So, now I just have a wonderful, wonderful example of the life of a man called Nabil Qureshi, who recently went to be with the Lord. And I think he perfectly exemplifies the idea of magnifying Christ in his body. And he did this through his life, conversion, ministry, and very recently his death. I never really followed his ministry until I found out last year that he had stage 4 stomach cancer. And since then I followed the progress until on September the 16th this year he went to be with the Lord. So in his life, Nabil grew up as a Muslim. He was part of the Ahmadiyya sect. His father was in the U.S. Navy, and his family eventually settled in Virginia. While he was growing up, he was a devout Muslim who studied apologetics and regularly engaged Christians in debate and argument. And in these conversations, he would try to point out where he believed Christians were being inconsistent, like with their belief of the Trinity, or he would say that Scripture had been translated and translated time and time again. So... And oftentimes he found that the Christians he engaged with didn't have answers. Eventually, when he was at university, Nabil finally met someone who was able to answer his objections to Christianity. This person was a man called David Wood, a former atheist who had converted to Christianity during a prison sentence for attempting to murder his father. You should also look at David Wood's testimony. It's phenomenal. He's like a moral sociopath who was captured by the grace of God. Anyway, that's a side note. David brought Nabil to a Bible study, and through the study, challenges from Christian friends, the inability for Islam to provide adequate answers or comfort, and prophetic dreams, Nabil eventually came to Christ after four years of God working in his life. But this came with a struggle, because Nabil realized how much it would cost for him to convert from Islam to Christianity. His family was tight-knit, and he knew how much this conversion would hurt his parents. When he was thinking of how much he had hurt his parents after converting to Christianity, Nabil said this, and I quote, It was then that I wondered why God had let me live. Why had God not just lifted me up to himself when I found the truth? Why did I have to hurt my family so much and practically eschew the ones who love me more than anyone else? The answer was sought and found in God's word. After accepting him, it was my duty to work for him and walk his path. Sounds a lot like fruitful labor. For now, my loss was to be comforted by his words found in Mark 10, 29-30. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home, or brothers, or sister, or mother, or father, or children, or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, 
and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So this person, Nabil Qureshi, realized what it meant when Paul said, to live as Christ and to die as gain. He wanted to depart and be with Christ, because he knew it was far better, and he also wanted to avoid the pain that he caused his family. But he realized that God had fruitful labor for him. From his conversion onward, his whole life was Christ. So Nabil chronicled his conversion to Christianity and wrote a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, which is a bestseller and I'm sure has led countless people to Christ. He was a passionate evangelist and apologist. His mentor, Rabbi Zacharias, described him as someone who desired to cover the entire globe with the good news that God's forgiveness was available to all. Even when Nabil was in the final stages of his life, when his body had been wrecked by the stomach cancer, he went on one last speaking trip to Malaysia, and though his body was weak, his passion to share Christ was undiminished. I give you this example because I think Nabil perfectly exemplified Paul's dilemma and his desire. He wanted to depart and be with Christ, but realized he had Christ-centered labor here on earth. He was willing to give up his family to make Christ known to a lost and dying world. And now that he's in heaven, he has more Christ. Yes. He magnified Jesus Christ in his body until the very end. His life was Christ, and his death was gain. We're almost done. Now we're going to look at Paul's decision from verses 25 and 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul decided to remain for the sake of the Philippians. So at the beginning of verse 25, we see this phrase, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. So this wasn't Paul being supernaturally told by God that he wasn't going to be executed. I think this, this statement is a statement of Paul's conviction as opposed to supernatural revelation. Although we do know that Paul was released and he didn't die during this imprisonment because he wrote more letters with the last one being to Timothy in approximately 68 AD, when he was writing this letter between 60 and 62. Paul decided to stay alive because the Philippians need, because the Philippians needed his ministry and that outweighed his need to immediately be with Christ. So we've got point one of Paul's decision. He decided to stay for the, prog- for the Philippians' progress and joy in the faith. So we've got this word progress. It means progress or advancement. In the same way that the word advance in verse 12 is a military term, talking about the advance of the gospel, so it is with the word progress. This refers to trailblazing so an army can advance. Paul wanted to cut out a path for the Philippians to follow for their spiritual growth and progress. And then we've got the word joy. This word is consistently translated as joy or gladness. It was joy that would come from the Philippian spiritual growth and Paul returning to them. Paul's continued ministry among the Philippians would be advancing their spiritual growth and deepening their joy in the Christian faith. So we've got point two of Paul's decision. 
that through Paul, the Philippians would have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. So we see the phrase cause to glory. This means boasting or rejoicing in. And while most forms of boasting are not legitimate and are in fact sinful, this depends on whether or not the boasting whether or not the boasting is sinful depends on the object. This is this boasting is a legitimate form because it is boasting in the goodness of God. The Philippians' confident boasting was ultimately in Jesus Christ, but it had a more immediate occasion which was Paul returning to them. Paul decided to magnify Christ by returning to the Philippian believers because they needed him. And we actually know that Paul was released from prison and that he went to Ephesus and left Timothy behind there and he continued on to Macedonia. And as you might realize, Philippi is in Macedonia, so he did likely return to the Philippian believers and he was able to encourage them like he said he would. So we'll look at 1 Timothy 1.3 just to prove my point. As I urged you, Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So, in conclusion, I would like to restate the proposition for this message. God wants you to magnify Christ in your body. So I have a question for you. Have you been convinced that this is what God wants you to do? Have I given you some practical ways to do this in your life? To each person here, what is one thing that you can take from this message and apply to your life this week, so that before believers and unbelievers alike, you may draw their attention to Christ? And the last thing I want to leave you, the last thing I want to leave with you today is the next verse, verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1. In this verse, we see the first command that Paul gives to the Philippians in, in this book. And if I'm not stretching things too far, I think this is how he expected the Philippians to magnify Christ in their bodies. And also, when you see how wonderful and magnificent this verse is, hopefully it'll get you excited for the next message. So Philippians 1, 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you for bringing us together to hear your word today. Thank you for the life of Paul and the tremendous example he is for us. Thank you that we can read scripture and see how he magnified Jesus Christ in his body. And I pray that you would help us to do the same, that we would magnify your son in our lives this week, that we would, before believers, before unbelievers, that we would draw attention to him in this lost and dying world. Um, yeah, just thank you so much for your word, and I pray that it would be effective in our lives today. Amen.